and welcome to another episode of the Energy Talk Podcast. My name is Olubumi Olajide and thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you've had a wonderful weekend. Today on the show, we're going to be having a very uh, different conversation from the ones we've had. Usually, we've talked about oil and gas, renewables, and a little bit about some NGOs working with sustainability development and energy efficiency. Today, we're talking about gas hydrates. And if you don't know what gas hydrates are, then you're in luck because you're going to learn quite a bit from this episode. And we're going to learn a bit more about our guest, Laura, and the interesting path that has taken her to where she is right now and the advice she has at the end is something that I believe everyone should hear. So I encourage you to stick around for the entire conversation and there's a little bit about um, a minute and a half during the conversation where the audio quality kind of messes up a bit. It's in the beginning of the episode so I encourage you to push through it. The conversation is well worth it and I will see you all again at the end of the conversation. So thank you and enjoy my talk with Laura. Yes, absolutely. My name is Laura DeFall. I, um, I'll start with my background. I grew up in Houston, Texas, in the United States. Um, I then attended University of Texas at Austin for my bachelor's, where I did um, geology as my degree, my bachelor of science. I um, did research on the Alps Eppenine system in New Zealand and in Texas. And then afterwards, I knew that I research in geoscience. So I went ahead and skipped my master's and started my PhD at Stanford University. So currently I'm in the, I just finished my third year of my PhD at Stanford. I'll be graduating in about a year or so. And this summer um, I am interning with BP, which is a company, the people are wonderful, have been treating me very well. And the project I'm working on is really interesting. So it's been an exciting ride. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, that's wonderful. I have a very, very, I have a very obvious question to ask. How did you manage to skip your master's? How, how did that work out? <laughs> it may be a bit specific to um, STEM degrees, particularly geoscience, um, but because I had accomplished um, multiple research projects, I finished two and a half projects and published a couple of papers. Uh, my professors and graduate student colleagues told me that I had essentially completed master's level research in my bachelor's. So it made sense to just apply for a PhD if the advisor was comfortable with, you know, letting me start the PhD um, straight out. And it worked out. Uh, my advisor at Stanford is wonderful. De he's the dean of the school. His name is Steve Graham. And he's been an excellent advisor and research ventures, particularly in gas hydrates. Okay, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, so uh, the work you're doing right now in BP, how's that been? And what exactly do you do with uh, at the BP uh, Exploration uh, Center? Um, yeah, so I have to be a little bit um, on my, my toes about what I can talk about because some um, sensitive information. <laughs> but I, I can tell you that I, I work on an integrated project. I'm a petroleum system analyst and basin modeler. So basically, I integrate anything from new measures to... Um, the reservoir engineers to geophysicists and integrate different data from seismic to well log data to create a, uh, a full picture of what the petroleum system in the area looks like. And I create four-dimensional models, so 3D models where the oil accumulations occur, so we can figure out in future lease sales which blocks to acquire, how much is there, things like that. So I actually work, so that's pretty much all I can say because um, 
there's a little bit of competition for prospects and acquiring acreage, but. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So I actually looked up some of the uh, the papers you've written in the past, and I can understand why they let you skip all the way to your PhD. You do some very advanced work. Uh, I, I actually took some classes uh, in petroleum geology while I was doing my undergraduate degree, and we came nowhere close to understanding any of the work you do. So that's much credit to you. Actually. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's so nice of you. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, uh, in the work you're doing, you've you've had a lot of uh, space to grow in the oil industry specifically. How do you see it um, uh, right now with the whole uh, energy energy? Uh, I won't say future, but the current energy situation we have. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a really great question. Actually, as far as the politics go, it's that's the hardest thing to predict when it comes to the energy future because typically with um, a Republican regime you have more of a bias towards fossil fuels, coal, and things like that. But then the democratic regime, you have more uh, renewables and looking for cleaner forms of energy. Um, so it really depends on which party is um, dominating basically the politics in the country at the time. And that's hard to predict. It's hard to predict who's going to win an election. But as far as what I can talk about with perspective on the mixed energy future, I think it's an exciting time because still growing demand for oil and gas for developing countries because they need cheap, quick energy to, to uh, you know, develop their economy and get better quality of life for the people. Um, so outside of the U.S., there's a growing demand. But I think especially in the U.S., there's a growing demand for renewables. And that's from stakeholders, that's from the public and other people who are concerned about climate change and um, concerned about emissions of CO2. So with the revolution of unconventional shale gas. We have cleaner burning natural gas now, but there's a few other things in the in the mix. So what's interesting is right now, Japan and India have been uh, really pushing for gas hydrates as a new energy resource. Japan started production tests a few years ago, and until now, a lot of the, the research and the focus has been based laboratory tests and uh, engineering poor scale type studies, but uh, the Department of Energy here in the United States wanted to see, well, if we're going to explore for gas hydrates, we need to look at it from a perspective of a petroleum system analyst and a basin modeler. So I'm really lucky that they partnered with me at the beginning of my PhD to pay for about 70%, 75% of my stipend and tuition to support me in um, exploring for gas hydrates in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so it may be in, in the future, of course, um, methane is a cleaner burning fuel. That's what gas hydrates produce. Um, but we, we, the U.S. has a lot of shale gas. So there's not an immediate demand from the United States. But because there's so much gas hydrates, it's found along every continent on the planet. And there's about three times more energy stored in that than all coal, oil and gas and other forms of energy combined. So it's it's vast, um, but it's really kind of still a engineering problem as far as how to extract them. Um, but there is a production test, well, a sampling test next year in the Gulf of Mexico where they're going to extract the gas hydrates to understand them a little bit better. And just to give some background to the audience that may not know what gas hydrates are, they're basically this um, solid ice-like uh, uh, material found in the shallow sediment of the deep ocean. So, so at about... Um, one kilometer beneath the sediment, you have high pressure, low temperature conditions because it's at about four degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of deep in the ocean, so it's high pressure. And the water molecules form a lattice with the methane molecules that create this 
solid ice-like material, which when you bring up only one cubic meter of the hydrate to the surface, at standard temperature and pressure conditions, it becomes 160 cubic meters of methane gas. So it's a very concentrated form of gas. And um, until now, it's been avoided in the oil and gas industry because they thought it was just because free gas can accumulate beneath it and create kind of some overpressure conditions. And they weren't sure whether they can control the production. Um, but that's proven to not be true. It, it turns out that they can control it. And another thing is that it's less of a concern that there could be leakage when drilling it. Because as soon as you stop destabilizing the pressure, it um, instantly turns into a solid again. So it can't leak the methane, it can't leak oil gas. So it's actually an interesting thing that's becoming less of a geohazard and more of a, oh, we can actually aim for this and use it as an energy source. So there's a lot of things, people are just brilliant in inventing new ways to provide energy to the world. BP is very focused on providing um, you know, light, mobility, and heat, and all these things that people really need. Um, and What's great about BP is they also have a ventures group that invests in wind, solar, uh, machine learning, uh, even CO2 sequestration into things like cement. Because another thing that I think the industry may do really well is figure out the CO2 problem by actually extracting CO2 even from the atmosphere and um, sequestering it back into the earth so that it's stored there. Um, so a lot of a lot of interesting developments going on, and I think it's an exciting time to be in the energy industry with a lot of interesting challenges, but brilliant people coming up with new ideas. Sorry for such a long answer. <laughs> no, no, that's that's actually perfect because you just touched on basically everything I was hoping to ask uh, throughout the interview. So before we go, uh, be before I go crazy with my questions, let let's just start with uh, the first one. Uh, so I'm looking I'm looking right now at a graph of uh, the energy consumption based on the source of the energy of the world since from 1965 to 2016. It's not the most accurate graph, but I think it gives a general idea. So I'm seeing uh, coal, oil, gas, hydropower, nuclear, wind, mm -hmm. the things we expect to see. But one thing I do not see are gas hydrates. And you spoke about the challenges that uh, that come along with extracting and producing them. So why exactly do the challenges still persist even with the amount of intelligent engineers and scientists and, and geologists like yourself working on these problems what are the challenges that are that are making these uh, gas hydrates difficult to produce even still that's a great question um and i know it's not included in these energy predictions but it's funny just as a side note when i went to the energy exhibit here in houston at the natural museum of science uh, ConocoPhillips had sponsored a uh, section on unconventionals and gas hydrates was part of that. So more, more and more companies are becoming aware of it, but I think there's two main challenges. One is that um, it may not be very economic yet, and that's because it's found in deep ocean conditions. So getting a well drilled out there costs a lot more because you need to put a lot more, um, you know, a longer pipeline. Um, so that's one of the challenges is whether it's economic or not. And then another challenge is the actual production part, the engineering part of it, because we need some sort of a gas hydrates revolution, similar to the unconventional shale gas revolution, where they figured out, oh, we can drill horizontally and frack it and get a lot more out of it. Because until then, with its low permeabilities and porosities, they they weren't sure that they could actually produce a large area, you know, at an aerial extent. So 
something that's been talked about for gas hydrates is maybe they can also do horizontal fracking of some sort because at the moment, just using a conventional well, the thing is because they're solid, um, when you destabilize the pressure, it dissociates and turns into gas. And um, the problem at the moment is the aerial extent. There's only so far um, away from the well that that um, destabilizing pressure um, actually touches the hydrates and turns them into gas. So maybe some horizontal drilling may help with that condition um, as far as extending the reach of the well and um, getting as much methane gas out of it as possible. So it's both an engineering and an economic challenge at the moment. But um, what's been exciting tackling it from the exploration side of things is it's not so much of a problem finding it as it turns out, because in seismic images, you can really see bright reflectors called BSRs that show where gas hydrates are found. And sometimes you can also see reversals in polarity that also indicate the base of the gas hydrate accumulations. So we can kind of see it in seismic and then modeling also helps predict. What's interesting, in my models in the Gulf of Mexico in Northwest Walker Ridge, Terrebonne Basin, I created a relatively small model about five by five um, you know, cubic uh, kilometers, so five by five by five kilometer model. And in that small area alone, uh, my model predicts that there's about seven trillion cubic feet of methane gas found. And to put that in perspective, last year alone, the United States used about 27 um, trillion cubic feet of natural gas. So it's a uh, pretty significant volumes. Um, so that's exciting. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, before before we get into the technical side of it, let's let let's talk more about the reason why more countries are looking to uh, extract uh, gas hydrate um, fuel sources. It's because uh, of climate concerns and people just want to move away from coal, and coal has been made Absolutely. out to be uh, 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 the fuel of the past, and people want to move on to the next step, which in this case is natural gas. And because of that, uh, you have countries that are still going through their own uh, development, countries that are, that are not uh, fully formed yet in terms of industrial power and economic power and countries that want to catch up as quickly as possible. So natural gas seems like the, the, uh, the natural, uh, pun intended, <laughs> the natural alternative to coal. And so moving forward, they have more of an incentive to actually uh, uh, go into projects like this and take it very, very seriously. And because the 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 demand for energy is growing and all of these. So uh, as we are right now, the countries that need this the most are probably the countries that are developing. Do you see that as a problem in terms of um, being able to get the funding to actually develop these technologies as quickly as possible? Or do you see it as an advantage? How do you see that? That's um, another point right now, actually. Um, you know, right now with the Trump administration, he's a little bit more focused towards coal because he's concerned about American jobs. And I understand that. But um, I think that a lot of the skills that the, you know, people working in coal have are transferable to oil and gas jobs. They can potentially go on offshore um, rigs, which have pretty good pay. <laughs> and um, I think that maybe helping them transition from coal to other resources would be really helpful. Now, as far as the energy concern, you know, the demand for energy, I'd like to mention that Japan actually imports over 90% of its liquefied natural gas. So they just don't have their own shale gas resources and other um, domestic 
form of energy for natural gas. So that's why the big push has been from them for gas hydrates, because they really have the demand. And so they can possibly make it economic. Um, and another thing is, I think it would be great if if we continue this transition. Um, sorry, there was one other thing that you brought up that I wanted to touch on. Was there another question wrapped up in there? No, I just I, I just mentioned that would that affect the investments that the uh, the, uh, the the project receive? Um, I think investments are good. I think Jogmec is investing very well. Um, the Department of Energy is investing uh, quite well. So I think investments are fine, um, especially in the research space. And I've heard talk, you know, some of these things are under wraps, but I've heard talk that some of the major oil and gas companies are investing in it as well. Um, but that's a little bit more under wraps. Um, I know I can say, well, I shouldn't mention which company. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's, it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, I'm sure you've been... Uh directly or indirectly involved in conversations that go, that go a bit like this uh a uh, new technology comes up let's say um carbon capture and storage and sequence and sequestration and you have this uh this company that comes up with the idea to make a, a plant that sucks up uh, co2 from the atmosphere and then most of their backers financial backers are all companies that have environmentalists and environmental groups saying that uh they're not contributing to the solution of the problem because they're taking money directly from all companies. Have, have, have you been involved in conversations that go a bit like this? Yeah, I, I have. It's been great because, um, you know, BP and Shell right now are kind of the biggest players in this mixed energy space, um, trying to prepare themselves for the uh, future of renewables. And I've had conversations here at BP, but even at school because Monaco um, Phillips, Basically, they in 2012, up in the north slope of Alaska, uh, used CO2 sequestration in gas hydrates. So that's something I didn't mention yet, is that when you produce the methane dissociated out of the gas hydrates, you can then pump CO2 back in and it turns into a solid form. So there's several ways to actually um, sequester CO2. You can do it in limestones and other um, type of carbonate bodies. You can do it in cement. You can do it in gas hydrates. There's um, a lot of creative ways that people are coming up with just pumping it back into the earth and having it stay there. That's wonderful. Uh, okay, so how have, have you ever been in a, in a direct conversation with somebody who is, uh, how do I put this, <laughs> clearly opposed to all companies in the... In the <laughs> I go to school in the Bay Area, California, so you can say I've had <laughs> I've had some uh, differing views there. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's um, you know, I really appreciate folks who kind of are willing to have conversations, um, you know, referring to facts and and referring to maybe kind of compromises between both views, but. You know, there are some polarizing views. There are some people I've talked to in the oil and gas industry who um, are very much opposed to this um, initiative towards climate change and renewables, and they're gung-ho for just using oil and gas. And then there's some people, particularly in the Bay Area, it's sometimes been difficult outside of my research group 
mentioning what I do for a living or what I study. You know, it's it's nice that I get to, yeah, really. Um, it's nice that I get to pitch the fact that I'm studying gas hydrates and it, it's a new energy form. It's cleaner burning, and and then they're like, oh, okay, okay, you're not as bad as <laughs> you're not as evil as we thought. <laughs> <laughs> but in, at the end of the day, you know, we're we're helping people get out of poverty. We're really, you know, trying to do good for the world. And I have yet to meet people in this company who have malicious, you know, intentions. Everyone really is trying to do a good job and be like servants to the planet and to the, the people on the planet. So it's been nice. And I suppose it has been difficult conversations in California sometimes. Um, but you know, you, you work through it or you try and at some point you try to change the topic because they're kind of not interested in listening to what you have to say. And, and that happens, but you, you move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny actually, because, um, I think this is more of a, <clears throat> excuse me. I think this is more of a problem with, um, developed nations. Cause as you said, uh, countries like Japan and India and, almost all African countries, they're, they're, they're in a place where they have a massive demand for, for energy. And most of the mm -hmm. population don't even have access to uh, the conveniences that most people in countries like America, the UK, most parts of Europe are used to. And so it, it kind of differentiates the way you talk about different things. Uh, if you go to a regular community in Nigeria, for instance, where I'm from, and you bring up uh, renewable energy mm -hmm. and climate change and people would laugh you out of the room <laughs> because <laughs> because they have they have a lot more uh pressing issues to worry about and you you, you go a bit into right or wrong about that but that's, yeah that's really the the reality of uh of the world we live in there are people in different places and different levels of development that need different things at different times and <laughs> quite frankly um it, it's it's very difficult to make people understand what they don't what what they're not used to and the kind of upbringing they're not used to and so i can imagine how difficult it is for you especially uh, being in a liberal community and trying to talk about uh any kind of energy source that is not uh on the renewable side but i'm sure it, it also makes for like some very interesting conversations as well <laughs> yeah and it's it's really about um making people more informed, you know, the more vocal you are about these things, the more maybe views you can change or enlighten. And um, I do have a little bit of a more controversial uh, view I'd like to share, which is that, you know, studies out of Stanford have said that climate change may affect countries in poverty the most because they don't have the infrastructure needed to um, pick up and move out of their villages and escape these new conditions. But I'd also like to mention, um, as someone who's studied climate models from CGG um, in the past from 160 million years ago to today, I want to say that the climate has always been changing. I mean, that's why it's called climate change. And, um, you know, humans may or may not be contributing to that change, but it is something that on the geologic scale happens a lot. So, um, it is controversial as to whether we can control the climate. I mean, that would be great because then people can stay where they are. You know, if the climate, if the overall world warms a bit, we're going to have to move to places like Canada and Russia, which is fine. Canada seems nice, but <laughs> <laughs> it has big implications for economics because some some places in disadvantaged environments, 
you know, won't fare as well. Um, but another thing that I'd like to mention that may not be as well known is something that I've studied in geology and looking at the geologic timescale is that right now we've actually been entering a ice age. So that may not be as well known to the audience. Um, so it really is still a debate as far as do we want um, to increase or decrease temperatures and can we do that? Because certainly we it'd be best to avoid an ice age. I think an ice age when there is the least, um, you know, flourishing of, of trees and plants and, and people will really kind of suffer there. Um, but in the Cretaceous, which was a time pretty long ago, <laughs> is um, when there was the highest CO2 and, um, and it, the planet was the warmest. And actually you had the biggest animals, you had the biggest uh, dinosaurs, you had the biggest trees and plants. The, the world was very, very green. So everything was flourishing because we need to keep in mind that at the end of the day, CO2 feeds plants. You know, we don't want to starve plants. So there, there is a balance that needs to be met. And I think that we're all striving for that balance. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the last guest I had on the show, we spoke briefly about these. He is from Indonesia. He works at Halliburton. And... We were talking a bit about um, how uh, climate the uh, climate actions or inactions affect different communities uh, a, a, a bit differently. The the term he used was displaced hardship, uh, and the, mm -hmm. the way he explained it is uh, basically uh, countries that are not so well off, the countries that are not so set uh, politically and economically, mm -hmm. they, they would suffer the most from. Um, from the industrial revolutions of the past that they had no 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 uh stake in and they had no profits from and i think um the something that puts me off personally uh from most and from most um environmental groups and environmental conversations is the fact that they don't really speak for people in those communities at least yeah. not really because uh, if you meet somebody who is from a well-off country and they talk about some things about climate change and things and that, and they bring up solutions, and you just look at these solutions and like, if if these solutions get impl implemented in a country like Nigeria, where I'm from, that is the mm -hmm. end of economic growth, and we're, we're struggling mm -hmm. as it is. And I'm like, it's 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 really not fair for people who are. Uh, we're talking about billions and billions of people in in uh, in Asia, in Africa, people who yeah. don't have a say in most of these conversations, and we have people speaking for them but not speaking in their best interest, and this is how the uh, the conversation gets a bit complicated most times. And I'm sure you've heard a lot of policy conversations surrounding this, and when yeah. politics gets involved in um in in conversations like that, sometimes it doesn't always go so well, and that's why I I I think if if everybody was just like uh an engineer and just looking for the best way to go about things, maybe people will be less angry all the time, but unfortunately <laughs> that's what we have. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm someone who's a fan of less government control, at least in the United States. I think that I'm a big fan of capitalism. I mean, I have um so basically I have family in Bulgaria who grew up in communism and they tell me about the communist and socialist regime and let me just tell you, it, it, it does not work, in my opinion. Um, capitalism is great for growth. And I think the United States is just in a very advantaged place where we do get to think about um, things like 
renewables and things that we can afford potentially if it becomes economically competitive. Um, but you're right that countries like in Africa and China um, or, you know, in Asian countries, they're, they're not in the same place. They, they need um, cheaper forms of energy that can help them during their economic growth. So I completely agree with you in that perspective. And sometimes the people in the United States who are big fans of renewables need to kind of take a step back and think of the global impact as well, because they're almost kind of, I guess I talk in the perspective of the extremists, at least what I've heard from them is they essentially want people in the United States to become cavemen. They're like, don't use you know, air conditioning, don't use dishwashers, don't use this and that. And they want us to go backwards in the quality of life. Um, but then in the meantime, the biggest advocates for it are flying in private jets to go talk about it in other places. And it's like kind of hypocritical, but, um, <laughs> you know, again, it's about balance. <laughs> yes, it is about balance. And I think we're, we're pretty much a long way away from actually getting to that balance. But uh, one thing that I know would, would help out a lot is uh, if, if people have more options, yeah, open options, and we have more more fuel sources in the energy mix, and people and people can choose what works best for them, and being environmentally mindful, doing best for the communities. But you can't just phase out something. And something interesting that I found while I was while I was doing a bit of research for the show is we've never really stopped using any any fuel source. We just only added more, and that has been a trend we've had for for so long. Mm-hmm. We started with butter and then we move to coal natural gas oil and gas but we, we we've never stopped using anything because as the world continues to develop more people need energy because not everyone has access to energy immediately comes about and the the, the, the last to get those 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 new energies are people in the countries that, that can that cannot afford them and this is just the reality we have so I don't really see a future where we stop using oil and gas completely or we stop using one form of energy over the other, but it, it gives people more options. And yeah, uh, we have lots of really, as I said, working on solutions. And it's, it's going to be a long way, but I think it's going to make for a very, very good story in the future, like, hopefully. Yes, yes. I mean, one thing I'd like to mention is that we, we, we ought to keep in mind that oil and gas or hydrocarbons, even coal, those are ultimately finite resources. Now we're fine for the next hundreds of years. And if you put gas hydrates in the mix, we're fine for the next three to 500 years. So that's fine, but let's let's assume that humans are gonna be around you know, forever. <laughs> I mean, that's the hope, right? But um, uh, so eventually, these resources are finite. So I am glad to see that there is an energy mix and we are trying to find things that are not finite, like um, wind and solar. I can see how that would be um, maybe dominating one day in the future, maybe 100 or 200 years from now. But um, you're right that it's not going to be anytime soon that we break away from these finite resources. Okay. Okay. So I also want to ask about you personally. You've done a lot of projects in your uh, educational career and professional career. What, which one would you say has been the most impactful to you personally? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, the first one that comes to mind is my current project at BP because 
I have to say, I come to work so excited and I leave excited and it's just a very fulfilling project. I wish I could talk more details about it, but I can't. So I'll pick maybe my second um, most interesting one, which would be, ooh, that's, that's also tough. That is a tough one. I guess my PhD research is my second most interesting because of this new, new view on gas hydrates. I mean, to be completely honest, when I started my PhD, I had n no prior knowledge to gas hydrates. None. Really? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I started and dived right into my research not knowing a thing about gas hydrates. <laughs> and that's been kind of a common trend in my life. I mean, majority of my early life, I wanted to be an artist, which is really, most people don't expect that. And then um, I was involved, I was vice president of the Future Business Leaders of wait, America organization. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, what, what kind of artist? Um, I really loved painting. I loved landscapes, portraits, um, even charcoal drawings, but mostly acrylics. Um, so I wanted to be just um, kind of a freelance artist, maybe an art studio where I could teach classes, maybe like Bob Ross style, you know. <laughs> um, so I really didn't have a very definitive business plan for it, to be honest. I just enjoyed it. But then I realized it was more of a hobby when it came down to it. I liked doing it when I was inspired, but I didn't feel as in love with it whenever I had to do it on a daily basis. So I was trying to look for something else. People told me that I seemed to be good at business and that's what my dad did. So I started out with business at University of Texas, Austin. And then I'd say with my microeconomics class, I wasn't completely infatuated and um, I was concerned and I was talking to my father. Um, fortunately, he's been a great supervisor to, you know, great advisor to me my whole life. And I, you know, we saw that I was good at math and science and art, but we didn't know how to combine that skill set. But luckily, some a geologist at Conoco Phillips, when she overheard that, she said, wait, geology is absolutely the combination of math, science and art. So have her try that out. And I feel so blessed that I did because, again, I actually was at UT Austin and I had no idea that geology was even a major, that it was a career. I'm telling you, this has been a common trend in my life where I have no idea something exists and then bam, I'm, I dive into it. <laughs> it's bizarre. But um, I remember starting my first geology class with um, Professor Jung-Fu Lin at Austin. And I remember getting to class early in the morning, 8 a.m., ready to go. And I did not used to be a morning person like I am now. And I was always um, excited to answer questions. And I ended up making... Um, a A++ in the class, like 103 out of 100, and um, ended up getting a research position with him, um, kind of an assistant at the time, and transferred into the school, which had a 14% um, transfer acceptance rate. But luckily, I got in, and the rest is history. I just really dived into research and got a lot of great opportunities. It's a great um, university for research opportunities. Um, so that's a little bit more on um, what has gotten me excited and I can touch a little bit on the projects I did in undergrad if you'd like to hear. Um, you know, I used, okay, I used this method called um, detrital zircon yeah, geochronology sure. to do provenance analyses. So basically what you do is you collect sediment, you collect rocks, and you get these tiny little, you know, microscopic grains out of them, and you blast them with this laser that's hotter than like the surface of the sun, and it um, gets the isotopes out of it, like the uranium lead, and you can figure out what age those crystals formed. And then you can figure out 
which um, igneous or metamorphic rocks, like which mountain ranges those little sediment come from. And it's a powerful tool because then you can figure out the sediment routing systems, you know, 13 or 40 or 50 million years ago or more, and then figure out, you know, predictions for where more reservoirs can be. So that was my project in New Zealand. It was to figure out the sub-basin segregation and whether we would want to drill up dip or down dip, depending on where the sediment was coming from at the time. And then a project I did on the Alps Epinine system was to look at the tectonic evolution, which was really interesting. And finally, this project I did in Texas was on the Colorado River, looking at how um, modern day anthropogenic effects of dams affect the sediment routing system, because we need to keep in mind that Today, with anthropogenic, um, you know, inhibitors to sediment flow, the source to sink relationship is going to be different than it was um, before humans were around, and um, that may also have implications for topography and how that affected the sediment routing system. So, it's been it was a lot of interesting projects that span different parts of geology. Like last summer with Conoco Phillips, I worked on an appraisal project which I'd never done before. And now I'm going back to my roots of petroleum systems analysis and basin modeling here at BP, which I found is kind of one of the most exciting things for me. I'd say I'm a little bit biased towards it because it's such an integrative, um, an integrative science. And I love that. I love being able to talk to everyone on my floor and different floors and just um, I depend on a lot of different people and a lot of different expertise and using their knowledge, picking their brains. And that to me is exciting because I'm kind of an extrovert and I, you know, like collaboration and talking with people. So it's it's really a good fit for me. Uh, that's actually wonderful to hear. OK, I, I don't want to discount your hard work because I know it was taken. It must have taken a lot of work to get to where you are today. But. When you spoke earlier about uh, you starting out with business and then you just speaking about your love of math, science and uh, and art, and it does perfectly just marriage up all to like geology. Do you feel yeah. lucky that at the time you got the nudge in that direction when you did? Absolutely. To this day, I keep in touch with that geologist, um, Karlota um, Chernoff. She is now in Alaska and I, owe everything to her. And I've told her this because without her input, I may not have fallen into geology and found my passion. And it really is my ikigai, you know, um, it really is my passion. And she changed my life. So it really is the advice I would give to people is always seek advice from mentors, seek advice from people with more experience or older and find that thing that you're passionate about. Talk about what you're skilled at, what you enjoy, and you'll eventually find that thing that utilizes your skills, pays you for it, you have fun doing it. Um, just always seek more mentors. I'd say that's the biggest thing. Mentorship has been my, really what's gotten me here. I owe my success completely to others, completely to the mentors I've had because mentors can really change your life and the trajectory of your career. That's wonderful. I, I've, I'm really happy that we had to got the chance to have this conversation. This bit kind of came out of nowhere because I, I there, there was nowhere I could find this when I was researching about you. So I'm really happy that uh, it came up during this interview. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Very good question so far. <laughs> it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Uh, okay, so I, I, I think that's everything I wanted to ask. Uh, 
but uh, before I let you go, I just want to ask one more, one more question. Uh, I have lots of people in uh, young, young, young professionals, people who are just either finishing up the degree or just about uh, finishing up in university. What would you tell them about uh, just choosing projects and finding what you're really passionate about to make a career out of when you're just starting out? Yeah, so I think these days, um, any market you look at is becoming more and more competitive. I mean, people with the digital revolution, with you know technology exponentially increasing, we have access to information at the tip of our fingers with Google. Um, it is becoming a bit more competitive and you have to set yourself apart from others. And by to do that, you need to be involved in organizations, be involved with clubs, be involved in activities and research outside of just classes. These days, if you ask me, I think classwork is, is not enough. I mean, getting that good GPA is great, but you need to show that it really is your passion by going above and beyond, like sacrificing some social life and some things like that to, to really dive into the, the people and the, the work and everything like that. Um, another big thing that I already mentioned is mentors. Always reach out and try to find mentors because people actually take it as a compliment that, that they think that um, if you think that they can be a, a value to you and that they're experienced and knowledgeable, it's a compliment in a way. And another thing that I want to stress is utilize LinkedIn. I have loved it. It has been um, so much fun. Uh, I mean, I'm a naturally extroverted person, so it's been a pleasure connecting with people, talking to people and sharing, you know, my experiences. But LinkedIn can really open opportunities for you because it's another way, a social platform to connect you with a broader network of people that you otherwise would not have. I mean, look at you, Olu, you're on the other side of the planet. And yet here we are talking with each other. And that's thanks to LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is. yeah, reach out to local clubs, reach out through LinkedIn and um, just never let your your hunger and your your drive and your goals kind of lose sight of, of you know, your vision and, and what you want. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Laura, it's been it's been really it's been really, really wonderful having you on. Thank you so much for sharing, for giving me your time this morning. It's been really nice. Can I say now? One more, one more thing just for people listening. Um, I want to say that when there's a will, there's a way. So um, what I mean by that is it's not going to be easy. Like my path has been completely up and down. Um, there have been failures. There's been some classes that I did not excel in and I actually almost failed. You know, I mean, to be frank, uh, I haven't been perfect and there's been times where I completely messed up. But the, the thing is, you got to get up and keep going. You got to wake up, put it, put it behind you. Think about how it added value to your life because everything happens for a reason. So even mistakes, you learn from them. You grow as a person and either you won't make that mistake again if you reflect on it or um, it'll make you prepared for future mistakes because there's always going to be letdowns. And if you live your whole life not getting any disappointment and then all of a sudden at 40 years old, something bad happens, I don't know how you're going to handle that, you know? So, <laughs> so just keep going when there's a will, there's a way you can make your dreams happen even if it seems impossible. Um, I mean, my one story I'd love to share is that my dad came to this country with $5 in his pocket. 
you know, he had nothing, but he managed to, um, you know, bartend and make pay his way through um, a master's, which luckily he got scholarship for because he studied and he showed that he's, um, you know, worthy of that. And then he got a job straight out of that here in Houston, also working in the oil and gas industry. I'm not a geologist, though. I'm the first one in my family is a geologist, although my younger sister followed in my footsteps. She also became a geologist, which I... I also see his compliments, like makes me feel like she was looking up to me. <laughs> but for me, I think having that story of my dad where he had five bucks in his pocket, but he made it, he was able to provide for me and my sister. You know, he was in college when he had me. I was a little kid in a dorm. Um, you know, that helped. So look at inspirational stories. Maybe you're a fifth generation American and you don't have the same kind of like immigrant story background um, that can kind of give you that like hunger and that, you know, fight, fight mentality. Like I will plow through this and work hard, but look at stories from others. I love inspirational videos from like Gary Vanderchuk and others who talk about these people who went from nothing to something. And it's, it's really great. So that was just my final little soapbox uh, spiel I wanted to give. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Olu. It's been wonderful. It's been a pleasure for me as well. I don't think I can say anything more. You ended this episode quite brilliantly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, I wish you um, luck in the future of your podcasts. I see great things for you. And um, I'm really, really honored that I got to be featured in this. So thank you so much. Hello again, everyone. This is Future Olu. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Laura. Um, it was quite refreshing to have a conversation about uh, a part of the energy mix that I wasn't very familiar with and also to hear experiences of how she is getting over the career and especially what she said about pushing through and really, really finding something you're passionate about. And she made a very good point during this episode. Uh, we, we are in a very connected and very competitive world, especially if you're just starting out trying to get into job markets and trying to start a professional career. Um, it's really it's difficult to differentiate yourself but if you really try very hard and you know what you like and you're willing to ask people and be open i believe that you can achieve great things and really be in a place where you love and not just do something that you hate for the rest of your life so uh, that's just a huge detour from the conversation but i'm very glad you joined me for this conversation um if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast please do we have new conversations every week with different guests talking about the energy industry and uh yeah you can get in touch with me via email all the information will be in the description uh thank you so much laura for being on the show and i really appreciate you guys joining me this week um special thanks to jensen for providing the music of this episode and this episode was produced by yours truly have a wonderful week and i will see you guys next time